Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess, and this is episode eight of our series of bonus episodes in partnership and collaboration with All Tech is Human. All Tech is Human is an accelerator for tech consideration and a hub for the responsible tech community. A part of how All Tech is Human is living into their mission during these increasingly digital times is by producing regular live stream events with experts in the AI ethics space who are pushing the status quo and interrogating issues of race, gender, class, and more in the technology sector. If you are new to this series, the format for these episodes features selected audio from the previous week's All Tech is Human event. And in the outro, Jess and I discuss which action items you can all take, some ways to continue the conversation, and also offer some relevant resources and our own particular brand of commentary. Please note that if you would like to experience the undoctored audio recording, please follow the link in the show notes to view the original All Tech is Human live stream for the event. This conversation explores the topic, improving social media, content moderation and democracy with invited panelists, Sarah T. Roberts and Murtasa Shaikh. Sarah T. Roberts is the co-founder and co-director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry, also known as C2I2. And she is the author of Behind the Screen, Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media. Murtasa Shaikh is the Senior Advisor on Hate Speech, Social Media, and Minorities to the UN Special Rapporteur on Minority Issues. This conversation was moderated by All Tech is Humans' David Ryan Polgar. The organizational partner for the event was The Bridge. Hey, everyone, and welcome to our live stream talking all about improving social media, content moderation, and democracy. Uh, I'm your host for the conversation. My name is David Ryan Polgar. I am the founder and director uh, for the organization All Tech is Human, which is committed to informing and inspiring the next generation of responsible technologists and change makers. I'm thrilled today uh, to be sitting in conversation with Sarah T. Roberts. Uh, you might be familiar with her groundbreaking work around content moderation, even specifically about the health of content moderators, something we oftentimes forget. We'll also soon be joined with uh, Murtaza Sheikh, uh, who's going to be joining us any minute, and we'll just add him to the conversation. Also want to point out that this live stream is part of our regular live stream that we have with our partners, The Bridge. So check them out at thebridgework.com. In addition, we have a follow-up uh, podcast and curated resources provided by our partners at the Radical AI Podcast. So Sarah, without further ado, this is such a uh, hot topic especially right now with the January 6th uh, attack on the Capitol brought into focus the role that social media may play in radicalizing individuals and leading uh, from online conversations, which deals with moderation and, uh, and use of algorithm, which showcases what information people are seeing, and offline violence, which unfortunately we saw on January 6th. So, uh, Sarah, I'd, I'd like to just hear your your general thoughts about uh, how this changed the conversation, right? This capital attack, and uh, also just tell the the audience tuning in a little bit more about your your background, your work, 
uh, with the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry, and also uh, would love to hear about uh, behind the screen your your book as well. Sure, thanks. I'll try to, uh, you know, professors not known for their succinct responses, so I'll do my best to, <laughs> to, to hit all those points. Um, uh, first of all, thanks for the opportunity for being here and connecting with your viewers. I'm, I'm really grateful uh, for, the, for the conversation. We couldn't have known how timely this was going to be mm -hmm. when you invited me on the program, uh, but uh, here we are. Uh, on the other side of the the events of yesterday of the inauguration. So I guess, first of all, um, just if, for those who don't know me, who are watching, uh, my name is Sarah Roberts. I'm a professor at UCLA, uh, associate professor of information studies. Um, and I'm also the co-founder and co-director along with my longtime collaborator and colleague, Dr. Safia Noble of the Center for Critical Internet Inquiry which we call C2I2. You'll never forget it if you think of R2D2. So C2I2 at UCLA, uh, where we're working on uh, many issues, including content moderation, uh, bias in AI and other uh, issues of the day. So I think, um, you know, just to cut in on the most recent events, and of course, I think what's on everyone's mind uh, at this time is the, um, you know, what, what felt like, uh, maybe a, a great exhale, like finally uh, some action was taken on Twitter, Donald Trump's platform of choice, as well as other platforms that then responded. But Twitter, of course, being the one in the spotlight because of his proclivity to use it um, and, 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 and one might say abuse it. Uh, what was interesting about his uh, action taken to, to suspend his account was that in my estimation, um, what was asked of, of Donald Trump at that time was that he followed the rules, mm -hmm. that he followed the rules, the terms of engagement, which all other users must, must follow. And uh, I was asked to comment on that for The Guardian, um, kind of like, what's my, you know, what's my big idea going forward? And, and I'll just kind of paraphrase what I said there uh, around, around this issue. Um, I think there's no special AI required. There's no uh, legion of content moderators that need to be brought on to do this particular work around Trump or other uh, other world leaders who are abusing uh, the platform. Uh, the, they need to be held to the same set of rules at, at a baseline mm -hmm. as others. But then the question that I really had is why would um, the bar for such a, a powerful individual with such reach, and as we saw, the ability to, to go from so-called cyberspace, where we used to imagine it had no material consequences in the world, to fomenting insurrection mm. at, the, at the U.S. Capitol building. Why would we allow such a person f to have such a low bar? Perhaps the standard should be higher for such a person's behavior on an account. I mean, let's remember that these firms, um, there, there's no tablets that came down from on high where, it, where these <laughs> rules were written in stone. These companies are creating crafting policies and implementing them often on the fly. They're dynamic. They can respond to uh, situations as they unfold, and they ought to do that, right? They ought mm -hmm. to have the flexibility to respond to breaking things. So why not, um, you know, pivot and say, okay, the policy we had was not working. This person is poking Swiss cheese holes 
through our policy, we need to reorient. Um, so, you know, I do, I applaud Twitter for taking its move, although calling it the 11th hour, I mean, let's call it what it was, 11.59 with 50, you know, 59 seconds. Um, but, you know, the, the, yes, of course, we've got a user said the answer is money. The business model, right? The business model is at the root of all these decisions. And we'll get into that more later. Yeah. But um, well, I'll, I'll and leave I my initial comment there. there. Well, uh, Sarah, you, you mentioned so many aspects that we could dig dig in for the next uh, 45 minutes without a problem. So I did write down a few comments. also have a bunch of the questions that were submitted earlier when people signed up for this. Uh, so I would want to uh, motivate anybody who is watching. We have a lot of folks tuning in right now to uh, ask your questions in the comment uh, section. And I'll see those and then incorporate a lot of them directly into our chat. But I want to bring on right now uh, Murtaza Sheikh who is uh, joining us from London. So Murtaza, uh, welcome to the conversation. Uh, love to just have your, your take on some of the changes that have happened in recent days, uh, specifically the Capitol attack on January 6th and how it's changed your, your field of study, especially around the work that you do uh, with the United Nations uh, with some of the hate speech concerns that they have. Uh, thank you, David. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, yes, so uh, uh, I advise uh, not the UN itself, but uh, the UN Special Rapporteur um, on minority issues, uh, specifically, who is an independent expert. Um, and uh, I have a forthcoming publication also on the incitement to religious hatred under uh, international law and UK law. Um, so what happened in relation to um, Trump and, the, and what's being called deplatforming, what is specifically to do with um, hate speech, uh, but it was related to the idea of inciting, inciting hate, uh, inciting violence, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, the situation is a lot more complex. Uh, and really, um, what Sarah has mentioned about uh, a lot of these uh, react, uh, you know, actions being reactive uh, and taken too late, it creates further problems because um, what happened uh, with regards to the storming, in my view. Uh, was the culmination of, of a pattern of consistent behavior that if you wanted to put it in a very short time span, you would say uh, began before the election where Donald Trump had already started saying that if I win, I win. Uh, if I lose, it, it's rigged, which is a nonsensical position to have. Uh, but that's, I mean, that, that's a difficult thing to moderate. But as mm -hmm. soon as the elections took place, and, and at that point, the, uh, the lie, uh, you know, or, or alternative reality that, that was promoted on all social media platforms, um, that, that, that is what culminated in, 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 the, in the storming of the Capitol. Mm -hmm. um, and if we were to take his the exact words that were used right at the end um, to, to, to ban him or to suspend him, uh, it may be difficult to show that those words themselves were incitements to violence. Uh, and, and we'll see that when, uh, I think there's, there's a case in a state in the U.S. that is trying to take it forward. Uh, in just about 20 minutes ago, uh, Facebook has announced that uh, through uh, Nick Clegg uh, that uh, Facebook itself has referred the case to the oversight board. Uh, and we'll see how the oversight board deals with it. Uh, and it will be very embarrassing, in fact, if oversight board comes back and says, well, <laughs> according to your own policies, you shouldn't have uh, suspended him and you have to land back on. Um, so so these, these are very difficult things that we have to deal with. And, and, I, say, and I would say the thing that is an umbrella uh, or, or that covers all of these things is what 
is the impact and the role of the content policies that these platforms say that they have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what guarantees do we have that they're being implemented? Do we know that they're being implemented consistently? Um, uh, and before we start talking about oversight mechanisms and regulatory mechanisms uh, uh, and you know, uh, legislating to, to limit their power and so on, the starting point is implement your own content policies and show the world that you are doing it. And the way you do that is you do what you've done with Trump right now, but you do it with a lot of other, a lot of other cases. So for example, with Trump, they had to come up with rationales, which policy they used, why it applied to him and why it resulted in suspension. Now, that sort of reasoning that you would find in, uh, you know, for example, uh, a legal decision uh, is completely absent until now. It just doesn't exist. Uh, we have transparency reports, uh, which are a great step forward. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, they need to be disaggregated a whole lot more. Uh, the appeals processes aren't really uh, robust. Um, having an oversight board uh, it doesn't deal with every appeal. Okay. It, it, well, it, it's a Supreme Court that deals with uh, cases that are going to set precedents in terms of content policies. Oh, right. I mean, if we look at the, the Facebook Oversight Board, which interesting, interestingly enough, also uh, incentivized the creation of a uh, the real uh, Facebook Oversight Board, <laughs> which is critical, I, I guess, of, uh, of some of the ways that they go about making z these decisions. So certainly a lot happening in this area. But I want to bring back to uh, what Sarah was saying earlier about uh, platforms like Twitter making these rules and then trying to in enforce them. When we think about this, uh, especially since there's a lot of lawyers involved in in creating these content moderation policies through the uh, community guidelines and terms of service, which we kind of contractually agree to when we're using the platform. Uh, when we think about it, we, we tend to think of it, especially in a, an American sense, from uh, more of a free expression. And when you deal with statutes on uh, free speech, we generally like to apply whether or not this is arbitrary and capricious in terms of how a uh, rule was was enforced or, or not enforced. Where it gets interesting, though, is Twitter is a private company, and so is, is Facebook and other social media platforms. So First Amendment comes up a lot, but interestingly enough, it's Twitter that has a First Amendment right uh, and not necessarily the users. So Sarah, I'd like, uh, like to have you kind of maybe expand on that or, or your own kind of opinion, because you, you heard Donald Trump and others talk about their First Amendment being offended, whereas if you go back and read your copy of the Constitution, which is a good time to get your pocket Constitution right now, since we have democracy in peril in 2021, uh, you go back and look at the First Amendment, it deals with what Congress, right, what, what the government cannot uh, infringe on. So, Sarah, I'd love, love to hear your, your uh, take on this. Well, um, I mean, this is a central issue at play here. And uh, I think we have to acknowledge um, several threads in what you said. First of all, we have a situation now where we have private companies who declined originally to um, be in the business, so they said, of um, the moderation of the content which they carried and they were uh, legally uh, by, by American statute allowed to, to take that position um, now fully in the business of dealing with content full time, all the time, um, 
that now has gone one step further and has invented its own judiciary. Uh, so we're seeing this quasi uh, state apparatus kind of developing within these companies, uh, which signals their, uh, their profound power globally. Mm -hmm. And now we've taken uh, American jurisprudence, American norms, American sensibilities, uh, and American kind of legal traditions and interpretations, and they are being uh, sort of applied carte blanche around the world in ways that don't fit, in ways that um, might actually contradict other norms and uh, processes and expectations and laws in other parts of the world which have their own sovereign rights. Uh, and so now we've set up quite a, quite a significant uh, soft power kind of struggle uh, through through this uh, you know through this kind of packaging up of these not not just um, American norms but I would say specifically interpret in, as interpreted by the business interests of Silicon Valley. So you know for all the talk about free speech and it's uh, it, you know as a fu fundamental organizing principle of social media your viewers might ask themselves why they find their experience of social media to be something other than their own, their own free expression, um, that it seems to be uh, supporting the free expression of others at their peril. So I would, I would, I would hold that out and put a, put a pin in that. I would say the corollary here that I think it's important to introduce or the organizing logic around the whole apparatus of what I call commercial content moderation, which is kind of the at scale industrial practice of content moderation that we see these platforms undertake is that, and this is a central thesis of, of the book that I wrote uh, called Behind the Screen Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media. This is the organizing principle of the book. Commercial content moderation, first and foremost, fundamentally, Alpha and Omega, what is it about? It's about brand management and liability mitigation for platforms who are maintaining a business-to-business -business relationship with their actual clients and customers who are other corporate entities, advertisers, um, data miners, et cetera, uh, that there are significant uh, protections and effects now that are uh, felt by users, of course, you know, I'm not arguing that that's not important, mm -hmm. but I think we have to understand that that was secondary, right? Because when the platforms that we're talking about came online, it was under the guise of free expression all the time, um, unmitigated, un unmolested expression. We have to undo this mythology that we've been sold so that we can understand more plainly what's going on in the platforms. That was never true. And it never will be true. And I think once we get around our heads around that that actual organizing principle, we can unpack the logic that is driving a lot of these decisions and understand it better and also respond to it accordingly. Sure. Well, Sarah, I have a couple uh, follow-up questions to that, though. Do you think part of the problem is that uh, the media has kind of uh, promoted this idea, especially around Twitter, that it's a quote-unquote public square, whereas in fact, a public square is now inside of a private company. Therein lies the rub. This would be more similar or akin to a mall, which has a kind of a quasi feel of a public square and therefore legally is, is kind of 
viewed that way. Uh, I mean, I, I'm curious of, of what you think on that. Do you think that we're going to uh, have to reimagine what this might be? And I'm, for, I'm thinking about the, 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 some of the work that's happening from uh, New Public, uh, formerly known as Civic Signals, uh, run by, uh, you know, uh, Eli Pariser uh, is one of the, the co-founders, done some great work on Filter Bubbles Echo Chambers. Uh, so a lot of people follow, follow his lead. Uh, I mean, what, what do you think? Do you think we, we need more of a public type of social media or wh where do you think we're headed with this issue? Well, I certainly think we need many, a multifaceted response to, um, you know, really what is a, a, a domination by very few players in the market. Uh, so, you know, antitrust, it's, it's not just, a, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it, it ought not to be off the table. Um, it, it, it has other kinds of impacts that go beyond the obvious of kind of market and, and financial uh, monopoly. It, yeah. it has other uh, effects that could potentially uh, be brought to bear, but that's again, one tool. Um, I think market differentiation is a factor that's gonna come along here. These, these platforms have long endeavored to be everything to everyone. That's actually a very tall order and it's an ill fit in many cases. Um, in terms of this idea of uh, what constitutes a public square or a public space, uh, I would argue that, um, you know, I don't know that it's so much uh, the media that, uh, that, that carry the responsibility for that misconception. I think uh, early on there wasn't enough skepticism from mainstream media around what, you know, the, the PR apparatus at a given platform was telling them. Uh, that has shifted, of course, and there's much more uh, a, a kind of nuanced and sophisticated reporting around those issues. I think the guilty parties for kind of creating the mythology that these platforms are a public square are the companies themselves. And they did this, um, I think, you know, in part because they believe their own rhetoric. So that that is, you know, a factor to take under consideration. Uh, but also because a, a cynic's view would say that, uh, um, that was the way to get get people on board, right? I mean, what would you rather do? Hey, come into our walled garden where we have um, legalese that you know would take a law degree to really suss out, figure <laughs> out uh, that you clicked on when you joined us. And by the way, we're monitoring your behavior. And by the way, if we don't like what you do, we're going to kick you out. Or come over here and emote freely. Which would you rather do, right? Like, which is more appealing? So um, I think, you know, the, the public, in essence, was kind of lured in under false pretenses at a time when the functionality was um, where the uh, where the light was shining, as opposed to uh, the other issues at play. And, you know, in, in the context of the United States, which is the one I, I know best, mm -hmm. we have to um, we have to look at the rise of these platforms as a quasi, um, as a faux public uh, public square or public uh, sphere, I think would be a better term to use a theoretical term, versus uh, the the decline, the gross uh, decimation of public institutions in the United States. These are things that you know we could we could show on a chart like this, right? So as we're destroying the public school system, as we're defunding public libraries, 
as we're losing, um, you know, physical spaces for people to come and be in community, um, to debate, to, uh, to collectivize, to do all the things that uh, we do socially, um, as we lost those opportunities uh, in, in, our, in our sort of uh, civic life, these companies stepped in and lured us in because people want to be engaged. They want to debate. Mm -hmm. They want to be informed. But we have a problem when it's a handful of companies making opaque decisions for motivations that most people don't understand, um, kind of uh, guarding the whole thing. And of course, as as uh, Murtasa said earlier, get, guess who's patrolling their own behavior? Guess who's guarding the hen house? They are. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's just a, it's, it's something we wouldn't accept in most other quarters. Let me put it that way. But if you think about it too, and then I'll switch over to Murtaza, uh, the very act of content moderation tends not to be a uh, profit ad. I mean, profit ad in the sense that it could be a competitive advantage, but at the end of the day, like that 2018 uh, Zuckerberg, uh, quote that most of us know, uh, you know, we sell ads. That's how we make money, right? So at the end of the day, uh, because it's based more on uh, an ad-based model, most social media platforms is free but not free, right? So it needs kind of uh, attention. The very act of dealing with hate speech and, and, and moderation and nudity, things of that nature, is actually more of a uh, kind of the opposite direction of scalability, the opposite direction of of making more money. But Martaz, I want to bring you in on uh, the the question of hate speech, a major topic that is incredibly important right now with the turmoil not only in the United States but across the globe, where we've seen uh, authoritarianism uh, unfortunately on the potential rise. So we do have a question about hate speech. What definitions? Uh, are you using for hate speech and incitement of violence, right? So a big uh, conversation. We, we also received some earlier questions talking about what about the offline versus online connection with violence, especially after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So Murtaza, I'd love to hear uh, what you're using, especially with a human rights lens as well about, about hate speech. Um, well, yeah, hate speech doesn't, uh, as many people will tell you, doesn't have an internationally agreed uh, definition. The closest thing we have is uh, the UN strategy and plan of action on hate speech, which actually defines um, hate speech quite similarly to how it's defined in the content policies of a number of social media companies, which is along the lines of a direct attack uh, based on a number of protected characteristics, where it, where it differentiates uh, where, uh, between uh, itself and, and, and the social media platforms. Let's take Facebook, for example, is that the, the list of uh, the, the grounds of protected characteristics are far more limited uh, in the definitions of social media companies. For example, they don't include linguistic identity. Um, uh, hate speech on the basis of immigration status is, is a hazy um, issue. Uh, and it's, it's a closed list. It's not a non-exhaustive list. Uh, under human rights law, um, the, the, the grounds are far more expansive uh, and they should be non-exhaustive and they should really be based on any identity factor, which is how the UN strategy um, defines it. Um, now, in relation to um, offline and online uh, hate speech, obviously this is to do with incitement to violence. And I think what happened with Trump is that that showed that it was in terms of the when it um, When you uh, ban someone for inciting violence, when the violence has already been incited, the policy didn't work. <laughs> the, the, the idea of uh, implementing incitement to violence policy is to try to get in at the point where there is incitement. And the truth is, 
the social media companies, because of, of uh, commercial pressures internally, PR pressures externally, um, uh, you know, and, and having no sort of transparency and accountability for impl implementation of their rules, are very apprehensive uh, to implement these policies uh, as they're supposed to be implemented. And I, I wouldn't just take the example of uh, the Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook suspensions happening too late, i.e. after the violence had already occurred. I would take you back to, uh, uh, to, to George Floyd uh, and what happened in that situation where Twitter um, immediately uh, reacted to what Trump had said, uh, whereas Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, his immediate response was uh, when he said when they will be looting, they will be shooting, um, mm -hmm. he is referring to something relating to law enforcement. Uh, uh, that's... Uh, you know, shooting people for looting isn't law enforcement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I and, and, and when the boycott happened and when there was public, uh, you know, outcry, Facebook just, you know, public. Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, I want to kind of bring some of the conversation with that back to uh, some of the earlier comments that Sarah mentioned, because I see a bunch of comments. So keep them coming. And then I also have a stack of cards from some of the uh, earlier uh, questions we we received. Uh, I'd like to kind of point out, though, uh, there, there certainly has been a major change in how we've even viewed this issue. A lot of people right now, especially with the new Biden administration, are going to be looking at uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act uh, from 1996. Interestingly enough, though, that passed with uh, bipartisan support, overwhelming support, uh, whereas at that time in the in the mid to late 90s, the major concern was pornography, which is an exemption, uh, especially around more problematic uh, pornography, uh, is an exemption to, to uh, Section 230, uh, sex, uh, anything dealing with kind of sexual, uh, sexual exploitation as well. But... Um, it's also interesting to note right after that happened, there was the Cyberspace Manifesto, very interesting document. If you look at it, where where that was a manifesto saying, hey, laws don't apply here, that the the web is is kind of a no man's land for for laws, that it's not uh, it's not and shouldn't be under U.S. jurisdiction. Whereas right now, if we're looking at 2021, there seems to be a major shift. We're, we're, we're seemingly saying we want more activism from our political leaders. So. Sarah, I'd love to have you kind of take that of about where you see 2021 headed, whether you have any thoughts or insight of where the Biden administration might take it, because everybody is talking about uh, Section 230, both Republicans and Democrats, for very different reasons. So they disagree on the reason, but they both are talking about uh, revising it or, you know, Trump was talking about revoking it earlier as well. Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, of course, the irony of of Trump's uh, utterances on that point is that Trump wouldn't have been Trump without Section 230 and social media allowing his uh, his ability to um, to to become what he became. Uh, so I think that you know uh, it, it's it, one one is hard pressed to know whether his statement. Uh, was based on on ignorance of that fact or cynicism around it. But either way, uh, I think um, uh, you know Trump's uh, desire to revoke 230 was would have been a disservice uh, that 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 would have uh, not done him any good. Uh, so I think you know the 
it, it's very interesting. A number of years ago, listen, some of my best friends are lawyers. Okay, I'll start out by saying that. But um, I, I, you know, I, I came to loggerheads with some of them uh, uh, even just a, a few years ago, where I said, look, uh, the the kind of the legal uh, the the legal principle that's at play here that it, that uh, content moderation at the commercial uh, level has been organized around is this um, you know really this valve that is Section 230 that allows firms to uh, dial it dial it to their own um, their own preferred tension level right where they can either choose to not act. They can choose to not do something mm -hmm. about content and, and have no liability, or they can choose to act and remove content, likewise have no liability. Now, uh, my lawyer friends back a few years ago were telling me that focusing on Section 230 was a non-starter because it was a U.S. statute that would soon um, you know, not be relevant if it even still were. But of course, it's relevant in the sense that... Um, that may be true, but there are other kinds of power power structures at play here. The number one being the fact that these are firms that are in business. Mm -hmm. They're not John Perry Barlow's uh, Grateful Dead-esque imagining mm -hmm. of a cyberspace that's ethereal, disconnected from planet Earth, and also not in the business of, of making gross profit. Those, those, that, those are incompatible principles, I'm sorry to say. As a person who's been online since 1993, and I thought I missed the boat when I joined the internet in 1993 in its heyday, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I was a Johnny-come-lately at that time, you know, I can tell you there's been um, revolution after revolution in how the internet has become uh, this, this, you know, commercial space. So um, with regard to Section 230 then, um, yes, it may be U.S. law. It may be applicable only in the U.S., but see, the firms are global. The mm -hmm. firms have the power to do what they will do based on their best interests and their, uh, the, the legal uh, uh, mandates they're under. And also because that is a principle that's highly favorable to them. Who wouldn't want all of the reward and 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 really not having any of the responsibility? I would love that uh, setup myself, right? Where I can make any decision I want and really have no consequence with with a very small carve out that you mentioned for um, some of the most heinous kind of material that's illegal everywhere in the world anyway. Mm -hmm. So uh, this so here's here's the the latest kind of on two thirty as it's finally coming into public consciousness. It's a thing. You know, I always gauge this by, could I go to a cocktail party? Remember when we went to cocktail parties and, and had friends and got together? Uh, if I could go to a cocktail party and mention the thing and not get a blank stare, then I know it's kind of, you know, made its way into public consciousness. Well, I think 230 is a thing that's now there. Yeah. It's finally kind of up for debate, right, in the, in the, in, in the kind of um, it, it, social sense in the United yeah. States, certainly in the, in, in, the, uh, in the governance sense. But at the same time that that is coming up for debate, what are the firms doing? The firms are taking Section 230-like language, packaging it up in trade agreements, international trade mm -hmm. agreements that their lobbyists are lobbying uh, uh, Congress around, and they're exporting that around the globe to other places that the most anti-democratic things out there are these trade agreements. They're secret. 
you can't, you know, how do you vote on it? You don't. Um, there's all kinds of money and other interests involved. So we're finally going to have the debate in the United States, but we're going to export this um, not only de facto, but now de jure around the world in the form of uh, uh, tr uh, trade agreements. I mean, I almost fell out of my seat when I heard the the counsel from Google kind of wink and nod at Congress when, when she was there talking about this issue uh, at a hearing last year. So the, the last thing I'll say is that, of course, there's going to be robust debate with both uh, Democrats and Republicans claiming harm yeah. under Section 230, claiming bias, claiming harm. Yes, that will be a very popular position. But the, the, the statistics don't bear that out. I mean, research shows that a right-wing material online uh, circulates at five times uh, the level that uh, that so-called left leftist uh, kinds of, of of material would or left-leaning. So, um, you know, I, I was eager to be called before Congress subcommittee to, to, to be asked, is there a bias towards, uh, you know, in favor of the left and against the right on social media? And I was going to lean into the mic and say no, and then point at Donald Trump's account. Now he's been suspended, but again, as Mutasa said, I mean, incitement to violence, the yeah. violence, have, you know, we're way beyond. So the, you know, the, I think we have to watch very carefully as this debate unfolds in Congress, because there will be, of course, it will be political theater in large mm -hmm. part, and there will be a lot of um, disingenuous statements made around what's actually going on. The bottom line is that the firms um, enjoy a, uh, a freedom to act that their own in industry peers are sick of, right? So you've got traditional broadcast media, you've got film studios, others who are subject to a host of rules, whether it's broadcasting regulations or other kinds of content regulations, um, who are saying, why do these guys get a free pass, right? Uh, and it, it may have been the case that at one time, um, you know, content was just kind of circulating based on user-generated content solely. Mm -hmm. But these firms all have production studios. They're engaged in creating programming. They uh, certainly game that the, the, the system by using algorithms to put that stuff in front of us. So to claim that they're sort of like hands-free with regard to content and they're simply intermediaries, I mean, that is just uh, bogus. And I think that's something that wherever you are in the yeah. political spectrum, you yeah. can agree with. Yeah, I mean, that certainly seems like something we should point out that even though social media has media in the name, uh, it's not uh, you know, something that falls under the uh, FCC, not labeled as a media company. Generally, for the, for the reasons of uh, you know, a media company would filter and then publish, whereas based on user-generated content, you are publishing and then filtering through AI and human moderation. But Sarah, as you point out, a very interesting uh, evolution uh, with the rise of Netflix and everybody else being a content producer is that most of these, uh, like Facebook, right, they even have their own uh, produced shows that they have. But Martaza, I want to bring you in because uh, another hot conversation and receive a bunch of comments about uh, some of the kind of alternative media. And uh, if you look at uh, platforms like Facebook and Twitter, they have their... Um, I don't know, they're, they're cousins, I guess you, you will, uh, for alternative media. Uh, people right now are talking about uh, Parler and Gab. Um, I guess the, the conversation that, that comes into, into uh, play here is when we imagine this 
happening over the next couple of years. Is it something where, where you think there will be a general universal standard of content moderation that is adopted kind of globally? Or is it going to be uh, a different level, uh, almost like a country to country, it's going to be a different level of moderation. So you might go to the highly Disney-fied type of moderation that you would have in uh, you know, Facebook, and then you might have a more Wild West type of approach with, uh, with Parler if they, uh, if they get back online. So Murtaza, love to hear your take on that of, of where, where social media is headed, whether it's going to be a general standard or if it's going to be uh, a lot of different internet uh, experiences, if you will. I, I, would say, I would say a general standard, a universal standard is, um, is a unicorn of sorts. Uh, it's just, it, it just won't be possible. Uh, for a number of reasons, the main one being that it has to be implemented across a number of different state jurisdictions. Um, secondly, the, the, the major issue with content moderation concerns online harms, and a vast majority of those online harms are specific to the online context and are not criminalized. And I think this goes back to a lot of what Sarah was saying, which mm -hmm. is that the key word here when we talk about social media content moderation is responsibility. You know, how do we get them to be responsible? And, and I'm not an expert uh, in Section uh, 230. But I would say that the, the issue isn't whether there should be an exemption from liability or not. The issue is that can laws be crafted specifically for social media companies to hold them to account or to, or, or to make them responsible in an appropriate way, which, is, which does not engage normal criminal laws. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think what you see in Europe, what you see in the European Commission with the... Uh, with the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act and what you see in the UK with regards to the forthcoming uh, online harms bill, which will actually, um, uh, uh, which will actually um, uh, assign Ofcom, which is the broadcasting regulator, as the regulator for, for all online harms, uh, are potential ways um, to move forward. Uh, uh, and I would say, once again, going back to my original comment, we are still mm -hmm. at the point of getting the online platforms to implement the policies which they say that they have. And the issue with that, and, and, and the regulate, regulation, the, the regulatory approach that's been taken in Europe and in the UK is going to put forward the idea of procedural um, regulation. Mm -hmm. In that, it, 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 will force the, it will force the platforms to be far more transparent and accountable in how they're implementing their own uh, policies. But in the UK, okay. for example, there is still that tension or between um, uh, what is harmful but legal and what is illegal and harmful. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's still something that has not been resolved. And, and, and I, you know, I raised with you before we started the discussion that uh, you know, even if um, smaller platforms like uh, Gab or, or Parler uh, or even you know, uh, massively disruptive platforms like TikTok, which has taken a huge market share from YouTube and Facebook, um, all they need is a set of content policies um, to be, you know, for example, Parler, all they need is to say, now we have uh, some community guidelines and they will be allowed back onto uh, the Amazon hosting uh, service and they will be allowed back onto the app stores in, uh, in Android and in, um, in, on Apple. Uh, th mm -hmm. There will be no check. There will be no accountability. There will be no transparency whether they actually implement that. Uh, yeah. And if they did do that, it would be a very clever way to come back online and the same users will be using it and, and, and using the same sort of harmful speech that they were in the run-up to the storming of the capital. 
Yeah. Yeah. And we'll see where that's headed. So again, we might have to revisit this issue soon. But uh, looking at the time, we're, we have a time for one more question. And then I'm going to uh, check back in with both of you to see uh, any final thoughts and then where people can stay in touch with you. But given how topical uh, this topic is, I want to bring in uh, Kieran's question. Do we have any ideas why extreme ideas circulate quicker? Is it the so-called outrage effect, right? So very, very topical, good question. Um, we've seen a lot of uh, problematic activity happening from the potential climate, right? The, the online climate, the overall information ecosystem. So Sarah, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, are, are these bad ideas, are, are they circulating quicker? Like uh, if, can we remove certain people from platforms and does that mean we're gonna make a better information ecosystem and less, uh, white supremacists, le less, you know, uh, terrible ideas that can be, uh, that can incite violence? Uh, you know, it, I mean, it, it's, it, it's a question worthy of PhD dissertation. So, um, uh, and, and certainly there are many underway uh, that are, that are taking that on. I think for the purposes of this conversation, I want to steer us back to uh, the business model and okay. to, um, to the, to the extent to which uh, the firms themselves and their products are involved in um, promoting material uh, to the end of, of creating and, and keeping engagement. Um, so the first thing I'll say is, you know, uh, one of the lines that, you, that you'll hear uh, kind of uh, promulgated in industry is that social media is a mirror uh, that is simply holding up a mirror to society and then, you know, reflects back what exists in society. So to an extent, that's true in the sense that uh, white supremacists online need white supremacists offline. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, people, uh, misogynists, uh, people intolerant of, of others, ethno-nationalists, all of the things, those all exist in our world. And that is reflected online, of course. But I think the metaphor really is poor because it doesn't account for all the ap amplification effects that are going on and all the interests um, that are at play, again, financial primarily, you know, which engage to do things like algorithmically boost content, mm -hmm. um, put things in front of people's eyeballs. I mean, if you've ever endeavored to set up any timeline on any service you're on to simply just give you chronological postings of the people you follow, I wish you Godspeed because it's almost impossible to do, right? You keep getting stuff served for other reasons to you. Um, and so it, this idea of a mirror on society, I think a better metaphor is actually that it's more like a magnifying glass and mm -hmm. a magnifying glass can be used to kind of artificially give um, prominence to a particular facet of our society, right? And the other thing it can be, it, it can be used to do, quite frankly, is to, you know, start a fire. Yeah. Right. You can use a magnifying glass you to can. angle that angle that yeah. um, angle that that light and start a fire. And where uh, the and insects so, that are getting burned on that. Yes, that's right. And so, you know, so I, I think um, to respond to the question, which is an important one, uh, you know, there are so many, so many issues at play. But in terms of this conversation, what's relevant is unpacking the interests that are at play, which, you know, I'll go back to what Murtaza has been saying mm -hmm. this whole time, which is essentially that when we're in when we're in primary school and we're doing our, our math homework and we just turn a thing in with answers, what does the teacher write on the paper? 
show your work. Yeah, show your work. You know, yeah. show your work, please. We we the public wants that. So of course, legally and in all these other ways, these companies are not they're not they don't have to do it, right? At least at this point. But from a PR perspective, from a public um trust perspective, from calls for civil society, from demonstrations where um uh you know we've seen the result be in the cost of human lives, right? Show your work. Show your work. Yeah. Well, and unfortunately, uh, to to uh, continue on this conversation, we could spend the next uh, seven days. There's so much material, and we received so many that we couldn't get to, but we we will post that on our website, alltechishuman.org. We're also going to continue the conversation if you join us on our Slack group that we recently started. You can find that if you go to alltechishuman.org. You'll see that on the top of our website for that. I'd also like to thank our partner on this, The Bridge. Uh, check them out at thebridgework.com. And then see our follow-up curated resources where you can find uh, Sarah's book and other resources that were mentioned today through the Radical AI podcast that will be following in coming days and included in our newsletter. Uh, but I just want to hear from both of you uh, about where we can stay in touch with your incredible work, especially since this is an issue that's not going away. So Murtaza, I'll start with you. Where can people stay in touch with, with the work that you're doing? Um, the, the work that the UN Special Rapporteur on Minority Issues is doing, that, that can be found on the, uh, the, the website of the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights. Um, that's very easily Googleable. And um, the, the Special Rapporteur's name is uh, Dr. Fernand de, de, de Verene. Um, so th that's where the work can be followed. And on Twitter, my uh, handle is uh, Dr. Montez Perfect. Well, we really appreciate having you on. And then also, uh, Sarah, where can people uh, find you on? I know I... Uh, follow you on Twitter, and you you have some incredible spicy tweets. Uh, so so you're a fun person to uh, to see get in, get into a lot of great conversations. So where can people follow along with your work, and then also where can they uh, find your book as well? Sure. First of all, um, you know, for the for the uh, the the less hot take version yeah. of the work, I would I would ask uh, uh, viewers and listeners to please follow the center uh, the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry on Twitter. Uh, the handle is C2I2 underscore UCLA. Um, there you will find links to many topics of the day and to the specific work of the center, of our partners um, at the center and so forth. Uh, my own handle is at Ubiquity75. I cannot promise uh, that there aren't some naughty words sometimes espoused <laughs> on that on that on that uh, Twitter because I get uh, you know I get agitated, but um, but uh, at the at the core that there's more of this that I'm I'm talking about today and uh, other takes as well. So please you know if you're if you're up for it, follow me there. It's not for everyone, of course. We as should all follow book, you there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. As to the book, um, it, the book is behind the screen. Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media on Yale University Press, released in 2019. You can get it directly from Yale University Press. You can certainly get it from uh, the, the big uh, uh, sellers online. Mm -hmm. You can also uh, ask your local independent bookseller to carry the book or to order it for you, which they will happily do, and they would love your business at such a difficult time. So that's a great way to go as well. Just give them a call. Uh, and they will be able to order the book for you that way.
thanks so much to David Ryan Polgar and All Tech is Human for putting on this event and for Sarah and Murtaza's expertise on these subjects. So Jess, let's start talking about content moderation. What do you think? Well, there's a lot to say, as was already said by Murtaza and Sarah in this awesome panel. But I think where I want to start is actually um, something that they were talking about in the middle. Actually, it might have been towards the end of the panel, and that is can there ever be a universal content moderation? I think David like posed this question to both panelists. And um, I agree with Murtasa that like, I don't think this is uh, something that is likely possible. And this is something I've been really interested in because uh, there's another member of my PhD program. His name is Aaron Jang. You can definitely check out his work. He's done some really interesting stuff on content moderation. And something that I learned from him was that there are so many different social and cultural norms between countries and communities and people that the thought of even like attempting to moderate content to see what's like offensive, what is hateful, what is violent, what is hurtful, uh, and like any and all of the above and more that I'm missing is like super impossible to do. I mean, from people to people, it's difficult in itself, but then also to do that from like country to country and to find a way to wrap all that up in, uh, I don't know, a, a regulation or a law. That's just something that has definitely been in the back of my mind for a little while. And so I, I agreed with what Mortasa said in, in the panel, but I'm curious what you think, Dylan. I think that concepts of uh, universality and of universalizing, especially moral concepts, I mean, that's that's a big chunk of um, what some of my theoretical research has been about. And I think it's almost impossible to not fall into um, a bunch of pitfalls almost immediately um, because the second that you claim that something like content moderation should be universal, uh, you run into all of the different particulars of what you, exactly you just pointed to, Jess, of the particulars of culture, the particulars of um, society, the particulars of uh, different expectations and individual preference and, and all of that. But then the second that you start optimizing for those particularities and those um, individualisms, uh, you start to lose the universal, right? So like something like Facebook, right, which is operating all across the world in um, many, so many, right, uh, different contexts and cultures. How can you functionally you know, either universalize or particularize it. Um, and the answer is that you can't, right? It has to be somewhere in between. And so then I think the question is, well, what are the metrics for how you do that? Uh, and again, this question of what are you optimizing for? Um, and I think where I land on that is it is all about harm. Um, and But then you have to define harm too. <laughs> like harm to whom? Uh, but some, some sort of harm reduction model is, is where I would follow to that. But again, I think it's a much easier to poke holes in universalizing versus like a more particular um, like form-fitting approach uh, than it is to actually come up with solutions that can exist across cultures and continents. Yeah, I mean, you said the key word, I think, and that's context. And this was also something that was brought up in the live stream. But I think that context is the bedrock and the foundation of content moderation. And if I was to say something on a social media platform, like 
uh, I don't know, this is this is not what I think, but if I was to say something like, I hate men, um, there's so much that has to be analyzed about the context of that to understand if it needs to be moderated or taken off or flagged or whatever actions need to be taken. Like, who is saying it? Who are they saying it to? Under what pretense? What are they trying to get out of that? What is their intention? What is the impact? Did someone flag it? Did it offend someone? Like, there's so so much granularity and like complexity in just even one simple sentence and there's like billions and trillions of sentences that are being generated on these platforms every day that's the other thing that just blows my mind is like how in the world do we do content moderation in a way that we can actually keep up with like the rapid pace of content that's that's happening and the creation that's happening in our digital world the so where i come down on this is that i don't think that there can be a content moderation that benefits all users equally. And I think to some degree, you do have to privilege certain uh, needs over others, which is, I think, unfortunate. Um, and I think that de facto of how social systems work, and again, this is me speaking for myself, Dylan, uh, no one else, um, I, I think that it's naturally going to be weighted towards the people who are in power, um, whether that's the tech companies or whether that's going to be the government in certain um, cases. Uh, which is why, right, which is why the this um, case study that this conversation was essentially scaffolded on, which was um, everything that happened from uh, January 6th until now in terms of the former president of the United States and um, what happened in the Capitol on January 6th and, and all of that and then how it unfolded on Twitter, um, that it makes it so interesting because it is this like perfect uh, concoction of the government plus Silicon Valley plus user-centered design plus like just the question of who is content moderation for and who gets to control that especially in the United States maybe maybe in other countries as well but like the United States has this narrative around like free speech and like individual protected freedom of free speech and so like what do we do with that with content moderation and it's just it's messy and um, you know I think Sarah got to the core of that uh, multiple times in this it's just like the the sheer messiness, but uh, there are also there are also some things that were brought up in this conversation that can be done to you know optimize maybe something that doesn't work for everyone equally, but something that works um, to center the the needs of the users maybe a little bit more. Absolutely, and I think that you're right. Like Sarah definitely was spot on, obviously because this is her area of work with the definition of content moderation, which is actually one that I've never really thought about before. Um, but I'm going to read it out because I, I wrote it down. I was so interested in it. She said, "Content moderation is brand management and liability mitigation for platforms who are maintaining a business-to-business -business relationship with their actual clients and customers who are other corporate." entities. And so I, I totally agree that like people often think that content moderation is with the needs of the users in mind first and foremost. And that just like isn't the case because social media companies are private entities. I'm going to say that again. Social media companies are private entities. And I know that we all know this, so there's really no point in me reiterating that. But I think that it's so easy to forget that like private entities don't need to have the needs of the public in mind. No one is forcing them legally to think about harm and benefit of the public or of citizens in the country that they're acting in. That's what public services are for. And so with 
private entities being able to be in control of the content um, because of, you know, Section 230, they have a lot of uh, freedom and they don't have to be worried as much about what actually is posted on their platforms. There's a lot to be said about the trust that we place in these platforms to act in our favor and to do things that are actually good. (laughs) But in reality, no one's really forcing them to do that. And it's really hard to force them to do that. And so um, we might just be thinking about this like ideological world where there is no hate speech and there is no incitement to violence on these platforms. And that world, unfortunately, as it exists today, might not exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I um, I agree with everything you're saying. And I'm also like, well, that's the exact problem, right? Like there is if if in the market right in, if in market shares the private companies had like the same power as like um the public entities or at least resources was given to the public entities so there was actually a um ability for the market to work as the market was intended to work which is people being able to make kind of choices around what they can uh, consume or what they can utilize um but that's not the world we're living in which is what you're pointing to we're living in a world in which a very select few social media companies um, control almost all of the market share and the uh, public facing, you know, quote unquote public facing because, you know, money is, is at play in all of this, right? Um, and private interest is at play in all of this. But like they have very little control over content moderation. Now, am I arguing for like Congress in the United States context to have uh, control or complete control over what can be said and what can't be said on private social media companies? No, I'm not. Or on those platforms? No, I'm not. Um, and at the same time, it, it does. It does. And I mean, I think that if you think about corporations, which over the past 20 years have gotten more and more rights, uh, you know, akin to personal rights in some ways or other rights, um, that has also become very dangerous. Um so, like, personally, right, when uh, Trump was eventually uh, banned, as, as Sarah said, in, like, 1159 and, like, not just the 11th hour, but, like, the last minute of the 11th hour, when that finally happened, you know, was that part of my politics? Absolutely. And is there a part of me that's, like, censorship is a, a real concern here um, on both the government side or the public side and also the private side? Absolutely. I, and I, I don't think there's an easy solution to that. Because, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely one way or another. So unless there's like some system of checks and balances around content moderation, although I don't entirely know what that should be, um, I think we're just going to, this is going to continue to to spiral and be um, a, a very difficult conversation. Well, you're definitely not wrong that there is a lot of work to be done here and there's a lot of sticky spots in the solution for content moderation and we definitely don't have a perfect answer yet. So that I agree with you on. I think we, we might have some disagreements on some smaller issues within the the domain of content moderation that make for good banter. Um, but of course, good banter is cause for good conversation and the conversation does not stop here. For each of these episodes in our series with All Tech is Human, you can find a detailed Continue the Conversation page on our website at radicalai.org slash continue dash the dash conversation. 
For each episode, you can find the entire comprehensive list of action items and takeaways that we briefly summarized, and also more that we did not summarize, as well as the annotated resources that were mentioned by guest speakers during the live stream, different ways to get involved, relevant books, media, and other publications. If you have ideas for resources to include, we invite you to share them on that Continue the Conversation page as a comment. Our goal here is to build a space together that helps us raise awareness and take action. So the conversation does not stop here, and we would love to hear from you. For more information on today's show, please visit the Continue the Conversation page at RadicalAI.org slash continue dash the dash conversation. How many times can we say that in one episode? If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. We will catch you on Wednesday for our weekly episodes. And as always, stay radical. Radical.